delighted to be back here because I have just finished that 14-day quarantine. And one thing you should all be remembering to do is to be checking the updated guidelines that our church is putting out because if you have recently returned to Pittsburgh, you do not need to quarantine like I did if you do not come back from one of those hotspot states. But we are glad to welcome all of you who are here today and all of you who are joining us online. As we come now to the book of John and our passage, let us pray and ask the Lord's help that we might learn, receive, and hear from his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the promise that is given in John 15. And we thank you, Lord, that it is a promise and that it is not our strength or our doing, but your done that secures our hope in Christ Jesus. We did not choose you, but you chose us. So now help us to respond in thanksgiving and gratitude. And may we, as we respond, receive in full all those blessings that you have brought to us through the gift of your Son. Help us now to see from John chapter 15 and 16 the great and precious promises that come through obedience to your commands. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As your pastoral staff, Adam and Gordon and I often discuss together the passages that we're going to be going through and how each one of us has been reading and understanding this great gospel of John. And through that collaboration, we're able to uh, help one another and gain from one another and come to a better understanding. Now, in our passage today, we are given something that is, from a preaching standpoint, very helpful, which is a very direct and clear application. And that's not always true for uh, many of the passages we read in the Bible. Think about how John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. How do you apply that? <laughs> because John begins by telling us who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And so what we've talked about in past weeks is that the indicatives or the realities of our faith often precede the imperatives, which are the commands to respond in faith. But in John chapter 15, we have arrived at the imperatives. And so from this standpoint, it's much easier to find what is it that we are to do? How do we respond? How are we now to act in light of the faith that God has given? We have one simple indicative at the beginning of John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And then again, expanded upon in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. And so this helps us understand how we have this relationship to God. How does God aid and strengthen us to produce the fruit of the Spirit 
as we abide in Christ. And so, <laughs> if you remember, uh, Gordon helped us understand this aspect of how God works to aid and strengthen us to produce fruit as we abide in Christ. And this was a very, the reason I'm using this slide to remind us of Gordon's sermon is because I had no idea uh, that this was the way that the vine and the branches actually looked. And when he first showed us that diagram that's on the right-hand side, I thought, oh, that looks kind of like a, maybe a stylized thing. It can't actually look like that. And then he showed us the actual picture of the vine. And I was like, oh, wow. So that's really uh, what the uh, vine and the branches look like and how they're pruned so that they produce more fruit. And then last, or actually it was two weeks ago, Adam helped us to see what it means to abide in Christ. And so if you remember this very helpful illustration of uh, Gordon cheering for the Baltimore Ravens. And now we see the purpose of the shield that's in front of me. I mean, I'm wearing a mask. Why do I also need a shield? It's to protect me from Gordon. <laughs> but Adam reminded us that to abide in Christ doesn't mean simply, oh, you know, now I just ask whatever I want and, and, and God will, of course, give it to me. But rather, we are to conform our thoughts and our minds to his image. And Adam told us, this is what it means to pray in Jesus's name. Jesus is not a genie that gives us whatever we wish for, but a strong partner we come alongside so that we are on the same page and we are rooting all for the same team. And, and now I don't need the shield as badly. Um, as we continue in John 15, we now have another direct imperative, which is just another side of the command to abide in me and I in you. And this side of the command is love one another as I have loved you. And so this command to love one another as I have loved you is just another aspect of abide in me and I in you. And so for those of you who are simply looking for a clear and direct application, uh, there it is. Love one another as I have loved you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And so I'm sure to all of your great joy, I will not stop there either, but we'll go on for another, as Gordon likes, long sermons, at least 15 minutes. So here is the application. Love one another as I have loved you. And what we will see is there is a pattern that Jesus gives to help us understand what it means to love one another. And I want to look at the series of propositional statements that we have in verses 12 to 14. And so in 12 to 14, we read this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Now, if we were try to come up with uh, the relationship of these statements, one to another, we might come up with something this. We have an imperative. Love one another as I have loved you. And the natural question then is, how has Jesus loved us? He says this, uh, or we see this, you lay down your life for your friends. Then we might ask, well, who are his friends? 
those who do what he has commanded. What has he commanded? He has commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. So there's a, a little circle going on here. And we see that as we enter into this uh, command to lay down our lives for our to love one another, we begin to lay down our lives for one another. As we lay down our lives for another, we are obeying the command that Jesus is our friend. And as um, uh, we become his friends, we obey his commands. And, and this is a cycle then that helps us to enter more and more into our abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. And so I want to just focus on this idea of loving one another as Christ has loved us to better understand the idea of abiding in Christ. And so here are a few observations. First, abiding is first and foremost a relationship with God himself. How is it that we abide in Christ as we understand it in love one another as I have loved you? Abiding is first and foremost a relationship with God himself. When we see the metaphor of the vine and the branches, there is an intimate relationship between the two. The vine has to produce its fruit from its branches. The branches stay alive and grow and prosper through their connection to the vine. Now, Jesus helps us understand this relationship as friendship. But this is a peculiar kind of friendship, isn't it? So this last week, Irene and I got a chance to get to know John and Lisa Veropoulos a little bit better, and they have an amazing testimony. If you have a chance, you should talk to this couple and hear how God brought them to come to be in this church. I am amazed at how some of you have come to this church. Um, and I hope you get to know more about it because John and Lisa have an incredible story. And I hope that uh, Irene and I will have a chance to get to know them better. But how do you think this friendship would develop if I went and told John and Lisa, you are my friends if you do all that I command you? That's not the usual pattern of friendship that we have, right? And so when Jesus says, you are my friends, well, for those of you who have been coming to uh, the introductory series that we've uh, been having in the last few weeks, we know that God accommodates himself to our culture and our language to help us understand him and his relationship to us. And one aspect of that relationship, as Jesus tells us here, is friendship. But the thing that we have to be careful about is generally when, when there's some... Uh, analogy or metaphor that is given to help us understand God and his relationship to us, there's a limitation there. The illustration helps us understand one facet of our relationship with God, and it would be a mistake to take it in all different ways. So when I say that Jesus is my friend, um, Friends, oftentimes there's kind of a give and take. We listen to one another. We're influenced by one another. Um, if, if, if we're thinking of carrying out some sort of plan, um, I might come up with part of it, and you might come up with another part of it, and we'll figure out some way to, to do things together. But in our relationship with God, who is it that has a plan? Who is it that has purposed everything that has occurred throughout creation 
from beginning to end. And so that correspondence of friendship, that relationship that we understand as friendship, has a particular dimension. And Jesus tells us what that is. It's not that we're friends with him in the typical understanding of friendship. But there is one particular aspect where friendship helps us understand that relationship to God. And it is this. He says, I no longer call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so what we understand from this clarification is this. If, for example, um, Mike was to hire me to uh, shovel his driveway. Uh, I don't know if his driveway is very long. I can't remember it now. Oh, it's not, it's not too bad. Okay, so suppose he was to hire me to, to shovel his driveway in the winter. And um, suppose that I don't really have much of an other relationship with Mike other than the fact that he simply wants me to clear his driveway. Well, I mean, you know, many of us could do this. Uh, you know, you can hire somebody to do your lawn work, to, to uh, clear your driveway. And what would you expect a person to do? Well, you would expect them to come and take care of that task. But suppose that one time when I come to Mike's driveway, there's a large tree branch that has fallen across that driveway. Well, I've been hired to clear the snow. I haven't been hired to get out a chainsaw and saw up that log into smaller portions, carry it off so that Mike can get out of the driveway and, and, and to wherever he's going to work or wherever. But here's the difference. If I am now Mike's friend and not simply his employee, and I understand what Mike is about and the importance of his mission, I have a very different understanding of the task that I'm to engage in. If Mike is my friend, I'm no longer just trying to get a job done. Now, I'm on board with Mike. I care about Mike, and I care about his purposes and what he wants to accomplish. And so what I will do is I will be engaged creatively, intelligently. I'll be thinking about what is Mike trying to accomplish? How can I best help him accomplish what he's accomplished? I might go above and beyond the simple description of my task. I'm brought on board with Mike and his goals and his purposes. And Jesus tells us here, he calls us friend, because we are no longer servants in one sense, right? And we know there's a limitation there because the apostle Paul will call himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so there's a certain aspect in terms of our relationship with God in which servant is very appropriate. But there's another aspect in terms of our relationship with God where friendship is entirely appropriate. And one aspect of that is that God doesn't desire us simply to mechanistically and dutifully carry out a specific task with that task as the sole object. But rather, we now know what God is about. We now know what it is that he desires to accomplish. We know his purposes and we know his plans. And we now use the fullness of who we are, the gifts that God has given us in creativity, in intelligence, in strength to accomplish what it is 
that he wants us to accomplish. So on God's part, this means that he cultivates each one of us. He understands and knows how he has gifted each member of this congregation. And his cultivation, the way he works with us, is to place each one of us in a place where he is designed for us to grow, for us to prosper, for us to come to better and deeper understanding of our relationship with him and our knowledge of how he is working for good in our life. On our part, as we grow in Christ, we come to realize in greater and greater measure the depth of his love, his compassion, and his mercy for us. We see how he forgives our sin. We see how he is working to make us better men and women who delight in him as we see ourselves transformed into the image of Christ. And so as God brings us, as Jesus calls us his friend and reveals himself to us and what he is doing, we are no longer simply doing jobs to get them done. Rather, God's mission has now become my mission. God's loves are becoming my loves. God's purpose is my purpose. The second observation is that abiding in Christ is done in community. And you might notice here that these two observations that we're drawing from this passage square directly with the first and second commandment. When Jesus is asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? And if you remember what he said, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second commandment is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see here that as we look at this metaphor of the vine and the branches, that this is simply another illustration of those two commandments. That we are to love the Lord our God and that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Abiding in Christ draws us into community. It is the characteristic of the community of God, of the church, that we are learning sacrificial love for one another. Now let me ask you a question. When you think about the nation, much of the turmoil that we are currently going through, what holds us as a culture and society together? In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis observed that it's need. We have certain needs, and because we are dependent upon society and culture for much of what we want or need in life, our communities are forced to come together. We're forced to live together in community. But in the picture of hell that Lewis gives, if you remove the mutual needs, you also remove community. And those who have no need for one another are ultimately isolated from one another. And as we look at what's going on in our society and culture today, it's not hard to see that it is becoming a fragmented culture. That each group is beginning to isolate itself and would be very happy if they didn't need the other parts of society and they could just be their own culture together. But what would happen if they did that is they would inevitably find 
that they would have a different kind of interest that would be divergent. They would have different kind of desires. And then the group would fragment further until ultimately everyone is in complete isolation. The foundation of Christian community is very different. We are not brought together because we have needs that we want the community to provide. But rather we come into community because God has gifted each one of us. Because it is through the branches. Did God have to produce fruit from the branches? Was it through us that he had to work? Could he have worked apart from us? Well, it's easy to think of lots of ways God could have sent his, gotten his message across without us. He could have spoken, the voice booming out of the clouds. He could have sent angelic messengers. There's all sorts of ways that God could have worked. But what he chose to do was to make us his friends and to accomplish his purposes in us. And so the gifts that he has given to you are a gift given to you so that you can contribute it to this community that we are in. God gives each one of us with gifts. And as we look at different passages when it talks about how God has given gifts, he gives us gifts, one of the metaphors is, as different parts of the body. And no one part doesn't need the other parts of the body. If I'm an ear, I don't do very well without a head. And even thinking about the head, I was talking about this with Gordon. It needs a neck to point it and to tell it where to look. And so we are brought together as a community, a gifted community, to sacrificially contribute to the whole. Now, if we look at our entire passage from 12, uh, 1512 to 164, you'll notice a certain pattern. And we can see that pattern. Uh, oops, wrong way. <laughs> Here, in terms of the relationships, and you see the contrast that is built. And so as we look at what the Christian community looks like, as we've already talked about a little bit, whatever you predicate, whatever you say about the Christian community, you see denied in the world. And so with those who are called by God, we see that we follow his commands. And in following his command, his command is that we love one another. And so the Christian community is brought to be a community. They are united together by mutual concern, by sacrificial love. On the other hand, as the Christian community learns to obey and follow God, we then are rejected and hated by the world. And as we see, as we continue through to chapter 16, it is because the world rejects his commands. And so there's a, there's a natural kind of bookending here. How do we respond to the command of God? Those who are called and chosen and respond to God follow his commands, which leads them to love one another. But those who have chosen to reject his commands then reject the Christian community. And there's a caution here that leads to what I think is one of the scariest passages in the Bible. So why does the world reject Jesus' word? And he says this is because they do not 
know the Father. On the other hand, why is it that Christians proclaim Jesus' word? And he says it's because we have received the Spirit sent by Jesus from the Father. In other words, here, Christians are brought further into the community established by God. The fullness of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and their fellowship has now become present within the Christian community and are part of how we have unity with one another. And because of this, we hear Jesus' commands and keep them, and we begin to treasure this fellowship, this friendship that we have with Father, Son, and Spirit. And I want to close today by looking at two passages that two of our fellowship groups uh, have been looking at. And in one of our cell groups, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 28, and we there was considerable debate, I remember, as we were going through this passage. And we were looking at the passage of when Saul was confronted by the Philistines. And he sought to hear from God. And we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 5 to 7. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Consider this. Here's a man, and he's seeking to hear from God. He's inquiring of God, and he wants to know what to do, and he's in a desperate circumstance. And he cries out to God. He uses every means available to hear from God. And the answer is silence. There is no relationship. Is this a position that you or I would want to come to? Now, why does God not answer Saul? I would say this. Even at this point, Saul could have heard from God. If Saul had fallen to his knees and he cried out to God and said, Lord, I repent. I disobeyed you. Your judgment is just. But would you hear and rescue and save me? God would have answered. If Saul had repented, God would have answered. But we can put ourselves in a place where we have so closed ourselves off to God that even when we cry out to him, he does not hear us because we are not crying out to him according to his will and his way. In terms of what Adam gave us two weeks ago, we have put ourselves, we have so conformed against the image of God, where God and his ways are so antithetical to us that the only way we can ask is in a way that destroys but does not build 
fellowship. And you see that characteristic right here in Saul because he himself had forbidden witches in the land because witches would have led the people astray, away from God. Characterized in a certain way, when you consulted God in this way, you were not trying to come on board with God and his plans. You were not being conformed into the image of God. Rather, you were seeking to use God according to your will and your way. In other words, self is placed first. And of course, it is placing self first that is the ultimate destroyer of community. Everyone loves Howard. But if we all knew Howard was looking out for himself first, if we knew that in whatever decision Howard made, it's Howard first, everyone else last. Would everyone love Howard? We could try. As, Christian, as a Christian community, we should, we should try. We should extend our love to Howard. But if Howard persisted in this way and he kept following that trajectory until it became clear that there was nothing but Howard in Howard's thoughts, just as here in this passage, there was nothing but Saul in Saul's thoughts, in the end, there would be no possibility of community with Howard. Thankfully, I'm sorry, Howard, I didn't mean you. <laughs> I just saw you. Uh, our other, one of our other fellowships was looking at the book of Second Timothy, and there was this enigmatic, or perhaps not so enigmatic, passage in the book of Second Timothy in chapter two, verses eight, uh, eleven to thirteen. Second Timothy two, eleven to thirteen. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And one aspect of the nature of God that is here is God's nature essentially is disposed towards sacrificial love. God's nature is essentially disposed towards love for the other. And so because God is love, God will not turn away someone who wants to enter into that community of love, that covenant of love. But love can be refused so that the reception of love only becomes another means towards self and is turned towards evil. And this is the choice that we see in this world. This is a time when we have that opportunity to turn towards love, receive love, receive the mercy and grace of God, and enter into that fellowship and begin learning how to live that life of sacrificial love, which brings people into community. If I know that Howard here, I'll use you in a good way, Howard. If I know that Howard loves me and that I can always count on him and he's looking out for my welfare and he's even willing to sacrifice himself for me, that is going to draw me into community and fellowship with Howard. But of course, the opposite is true too. For those who would reject God and who he is, ultimately, God cannot be in fellowship with them because they have refused fellowship with him. So let's put this together in some concrete examples. 
how do we abide in Christ by learning to come into community, a community bound together in sacrificial love? Well, one of the things is that in this pandemic, we've really struggled to serve our children. Uh, our priority, as it should have been, was to continue our worship services and continue the ministry of the Word of God, which is commanded to us. But in this time, our children have really struggled, or we have struggled, to serve our children. This last week, ACF put on the coding camp. That was creative. That was a sacrifice of time and effort. And as a parent, I want to say thank you, ACF. My children really looked forward to that coding camp every day. In fact, we even had to turn to discipline because we were being reminded all the time of when coding camp was going to begin. And at one point, it's like, you need to trust mom and daddy. You got to stop asking. But they loved that coding camp. That kind of creative service, if you remember before, when I was talking about the example with Mike, when you are coming into this community, you are looking for ways that you can use your talents and gifts to benefit that community. And that kind of creative service we saw from ACF is what happens when we don't simply serve out of duty, but we serve out of the joy that we have in our relationship with God. Prayer meeting yesterday, another example. Prayer meeting isn't required. No one will force you to go. But as God becomes your delight, you delight in spending time with God. And one of the things I thought was very interesting about that prayer meeting is our prayer meeting went a little bit long because people were so enthusiastic about prayer. But what that also meant was half the people ended up leaving. And the reason was that they all had another meeting because they were getting together to figure out how we could serve our children. And so this tells me that our Sunday school teachers are really committed to prayer because they were at the prayer meeting. Now, why are they serving in so many ways? When we have come into this community and God is our joy, we're not looking to get away with a minimal effort. But rather, we're finding ways that we can use our gifts for the benefit of this community. Our AV team serving in the back. This pandemic has been a challenge, but the reason we're able to have this service that's online and also in person is because of the sacrifice and how many brothers and sisters have stepped up to help us overcome these challenges. These are wonderful fruits that I see of God's Spirit in our congregation. Let me give us two challenges of how we might now grow in abiding in Christ. The first is this. If you are not currently part of one of our fellowships, I would urge you, please, please, please consider joining one. Uh, for those of you in college, ACF is a way that we're seeking to have that kind of community where we can learn to love and serve one another. Uh, if you're closer to downtown and you're uh, generally a more young person, we have RISE. Uh, we have two cell groups. That is an effort to bring people of many different generations and steps of life together. So if you are not currently part of one of those cell groups, God has given you gifts. And we as a church are diminished if we do not have the contribution of the gifts that God has entrusted to you and you miss the strengths and gifts of our community. Another area where we can grow as a church is one of the things that's become apparent as I've been here is that our relationship with our missionaries is perhaps at an all-time low. 
And one of the ways that shows up is our mission fund is really, really struggling. Our missionaries are part of this community and they are exercising their gifts and going out and proclaiming the gospel. And as a congregation, one of the things we might try to do is let's come alongside our missionaries. And financial support really, in one sense, is the least of these. Missionaries, especially those who have gone out to places that are unchurched, or where there is less support from brothers and sisters, need the community of the church. They need them to encourage them. They need them to exhort them. They need the church to hold them accountable. And one of the things that I know our mission committee is planning on doing and has done in the past is that different missionaries are supported by our different fellowship groups. And so I'd urge you as you find out which missionary would be associated with your particular fellowship group, let's grow in our relationship with our missionaries. Let's find how we can support them. Let's find out their needs and help them understand too how they, we as a church need them and their gifts and their passion for evangelism to help us to grow in those areas as a church. I want to close with a line from an old hymn about abiding in Christ. And let's have this hymn as our closing prayer. Abide in Christ, this highest blessing gain. Each day sweet fellowship with him maintain. Abiding he and we are joined as one. In constant fellowship, all barriers gone. Abide in him, anointing then will flow. In fellowship, the Spirit's lead will know. Obeying we, his riches apprehend. Led by the Spirit, we will be his friend. Abide in him, the light of grace will shine. In fellowship, all shadows will decline. Obey the light, his life in us will grow. From darkness freed, our hearts will comfort know. Father God, May this be true of our church. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.